Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Well, welcome you all. I'm glad there's a clock there. Promise to get you out before kickoff. Um, <clears throat> it's great to be here. Marlene and I know, I think, about half of you, and we would love to get to know the other half as well. Um, <clears throat> today, um, <clears throat> it's a pretty simple subject, and, and, uh, but it's dear to my heart, and um, it's called Pay Attention to What You Hear. Um, I'm not supposed to have a clicker, am I? No. Okay, good. Um, <clears throat> pay attention to what you hear. And it comes from um, just two verses in Mark, Mark 4, and I'll read them. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is so unfair. Doesn't that sound unfair? Goodness sakes. So it's always good to look at the context in your Bible when you read your Bible, especially if you're confused, like when that sounds unfair. Maybe just check out the context and what the, the chapter was about. And it's a chapter when Jesus is teaching about the parable of the sower. And uh, they asked him, why do you speak in parables? And uh, he quoted an interesting uh, couple verses from Isaiah 6. Um, but before we do that, let me look at a couple other verses in that same chapter of Mark 4, verses uh, 10 and 12, is where he quotes from Isaiah 6. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables, and he, told that, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that, then he's quoting from Isaiah 6, that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Oh, that's even more unfair, isn't it? Sounds like. And then skipping down to the um, couple uh, other verses uh, in the same chapter, it says, with many such parables he spoke the, spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it, meaning the masses. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So in this context, he's saying that if you listen to what he's already told you, he'll give you more. And if you, and if you ignore what he's already told you, even what you have, you will lose And the reason why, uh, for instance, in Isaiah 6 that he quoted from, um, the reason why people were not to understand, were not to be given more, was that since they didn't believe and follow, whatever they heard would be twisted and misapplied. And it would actually do them more harm than good. Uh, let me read from Isaiah 6, six through uh, six, or, um, verses 8 through 10. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Sounds like a missions conference. Yeah. And he said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand and keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and bind and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Whoa, again, so unfair. But if you look at chapter 5, you'll see why he said that. Because they were stubbornly refusing to obey God and um, steeped in idolatry. And any words would actually do more harm than good. They had to go through, not because of God's will, but their own will. They had to go through a period of exile before they could be restored. Um, Because believing, you know, in the Western mindset, since since the Enlightenment and so forth, believing is cerebral. It's about facts. That's what we think believing means. Believing didn't mean that to the Hebrews and in our Bibles and even to the early church. Believing had more to do with trusting. Trusting enough to let go and to follow. It was all tied in with action. Uh, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer said once, uh, those who obey believe and those who believe obey. They're the same thing. Because believing is not done with the brain. Believing is done with the heart. Uh, it's more, it's less cerebral and more, you could call cardio. <laughs> um, and it has to do with trusting, taking a risk, stepping out. God says, do this and you do it without the cerebral part. Your brain is important. It's like the information hopper. And hopefully it has a screen on the bottom of it. <laughs> Uh, you know, to filter stuff. But it's not our believer. Our believer is our heart. Because believing God creates passion, creates desire. It's not duty. It's not intellectualism. It's, it's, It's heart and soul. And it turns into action. Because what we do with our lives very accurately displays what we believe, no matter what our mouths say. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, it's the Shema, the most important commandment given to Israel in the Old Testament. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's still something that they say numerous times a day if you're an Orthodox Jew. You tuck your kids into bed, you say the Shema. Shema is Hebrew for hear, the first word of that verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And that's our duty as well to hear, to listen, and to pay attention to what we hear. Uh, Mark 4.20, 
same chapter that we're in here in Mark. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And there's two parts that are very important. Hear the word and then accept it. And if we don't hear the foundational stuff, he's not going to give us more. Because if, if he did, it would be harmful to us because it would be misapplied. Yeah. I hope this gets better because uh, it's kind of somber. <clears throat> but it has to do with foundations. We never outgrow foundations. I spent six years studying the foundations up until the middle of December. Six topics the Lord gave me. And I, every year I would teach on that topic and I would study it. And then the last four years were full-time studying, reading. Like I'm going to work every day. And then I thought it would be ending at the end of the year, end of December, and it ended December 15th. I go, what the heck? I woke up and I went to work, you know, like employed by the Holy Spirit to do my day of studying, and the grace was gone like two weeks early. And I just felt like, okay, God, you gave me time off for the holidays. This is great. This is a little earlier than I thought. And... Uh, the, the foundational topics were life-changing to me. I've been, I've been saved for 42 years, and I've never outgrown them. The first year I studied uh, the kingdom of God, the second year the uh, first century gospel, the third year the community of Christ, the fourth year uh, the return of Christ, the fifth year the eschatological ethics of Christ, the end-time ethics of Christ, and then the last, this past year, the mission of Christ. And um, they gave me life. They gave me life. And uh, I've read about 300 books in those years uh, on, that, on those subjects. And um, that's over. I still read, but it's like I don't have the grace that I had. And I don't recommend this. I don't recommend it. <laughs> Unless you're really weird, like I am. Um, they were... Some of them were pretty dry, but they were life-giving to me. But at the end of those years, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, back to Romans 10.10, if you have it up there. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the heart. It doesn't say the brain. The heart. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So on to our next slide. At the end of those six, these six years... These two verses are where I've landed. And you don't have to do what I did to get there. Amen. Hopefully, yes. So, yeah, thank God. Psalm 51, 12 and 13. This is where I've landed. And this is written by supposedly David, who after, his, after he was caught by Nathan the prophet, for they say adultery, but it wasn't adultery, it was rape. And it was murder. And then he wrote this. And he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And there have been times in my life where God has done a reset and brought me back there. And there have been times where I go, I'm so far removed from this, I don't know how to get out. I'm in such a, uh, almost like a religious hole, or I don't know what kind of hole. I don't, know what, I don't even know what it is. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Every single psalm is completely written in thought rhyme. Parallelism, it's like a Hebrew way of doing poetry, except the words don't rhyme, the, the meaning rhymes. Like one line will say one thing, the next line will say the same thought in different words. And that's what he's doing here. Which means that the joy of your salvation is a willing spirit. That means desire. And that's something you cannot do on your own. And it comes from walking in the joy of your salvation. And I'm not talking about just the personal salvation from hell. It's a salvation comes from the word, uh, it, it means a much more complete salvation from, than just escaping hell and going to heaven when you die. It's something to live, be lived right now. It's rescue. It's wholeness. It's uh, shalom. It's, it's all those things. Um, and uphold me with desire because I can't do it on my, on my own. And then I will bear fruit. I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Because they'll see the joy that I have. Not in my circumstances. God forbid. But in his salvation. They'll see it and go, I want that. And all of a sudden their ears will be open. Do you know what statistically most Christians were led to Christ by new believers rather than mature believers? Statistically? Why is that? That's, that's just wrong. Why are we more fruitful as new believers than mature believers? Sometimes, many times. Is it the joy? Do we get talked out of it? Do we get bogged down into something that... Uh, is an enemy of joy? I don't know. Um, yeah, he told the, Jesus told the Ephesian church in Revelation that uh, to return to, your, to the love that you had at the first. Um, that's been an interesting story. Um, years ago, uh, myself and a couple of, couple of friends started a business in India which is still going, and it's incorporated in India. We, got, we did the whole shebang, and it's a website and development, uh, website development and programming, which I know nothing about. Um, and uh, our first manager was a Christian young woman who was ex-Muslim from northern India originally. And over lunch, we kind of asked her, her, asked about her, how her conversion came about. 
And she had been very quiet about it. And uh, so she started talking about it, and she said she, was, she grew up in an affluent family up in northern India, predominantly Muslim area. And um, <clears throat> she was in college, and she was in a little room that she normally went to to study that was quiet. And she said, Jesus appeared to me. Well, that's interesting. And he spoke to her. I go, oh, okay. And then I said, so how do you know that was Jesus? And she goes, oh, you can't mistake that. And she knew nothing about Christianity at the time. Nothing. So she uh, tells somebody, and they say, well, I know, I know there's another Christian on campus. You should talk to her. So she did, and then the, the gal gave her a Bible. And then she just started reading her Bible. And then she went home on break and told her parents about it, and they didn't let her go back to college. And they locked her in the house uh, with, uh, for two years trying to change her mind, and she, anyway, she, uh, now, I've always, I don't know if you, if you've ever had this fantasy that where you take a brand new believer with no Christian background at all, no church background at all, a brand new believer, and you take them to a little island in the Pacific, and you give them a year's supply of food and their Bible, and you say, I'll be back in a year to see what we have. See what you have. Have you ever had that weird fantasy? I've had that. Uh, I've always wondered, what, what, what do you have after a year? You come back and see, what do you have? It's kind of like Castaway, except better. Uh, I hope. You know, didn't get into this soccer ball thing or volleyball. Um, and that was her, except, except, except it was two years. She had her Bible. That's it. And then one night she said that the, the Lord told her, uh, pack your suitcase because tomorrow you're going to be able to walk away. And she, sure enough, she woke up the next day and everyone's gone. The servants are gone. The parents are gone. Her sister's gone. Everybody's gone. Huh. So she walks away. And then she um, moves down to southern India and uh, changes her name because her dad had hired a couple of hitmen to do a mercy killing, which she thought was totally justified. Because she ruined their, his life and everybody else's life. Or nobody would marry her sister and all that kind of stuff because of her. Um, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is <laughs> we're talking to her and she's quietly telling us this. After reading her Bible for two years, she thought that all Christians go around and heal people and lead them to Christ all the time. And that's what she did. She said she, would tell, she told story after story about people that she would lay hands on and they'd be healed. And, and uh, she kind of took that uh, Luke 10 thing about the 70 being sent out like she, lambs among wolves, eat whatever set before you, heal their sick, and then tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. And she told, told a story about of a guy with elephantaceous in his leg, like huge from parasites, you know, it's like what the uh, Bible called dropsy. Uh, she put her hand on his leg and prayed, and boom, it went instantly to normal size and blah, blah. Just story after story. And then she said, uh, and then I hooked up with a Western organization, Christian organization. She goes, and it just went away. It all went away. And she goes, I don't know why. It just went away. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh. We're so sorry. 
we're so sorry. We don't know what happened, but I'm sorry that you came like us. So, there have been many times where God has like, said, remember what it was like as a new believer? You woke up loved, accepted, pure, uh, clean, uh, ready for the day, and you hadn't done anything right yet. You hadn't done anything good yet. It's just the gospel, the good news of Jesus, nothing to earn, and you're there. Our pastor, uh, Jeff King, he uh, has been involved for a few years now at the Transforming Center down in Illinois, and he took me on a couple of the retreats there, and the first time I went, it's, it, the best way to describe these people are contemplative evangelicals. <laughs> and... Uh, they do fixed hours of prayer, and then this is like a teaching session too. But the first first day, first morning, first session, there was a fixed hour of prayer. So I'm new to this stuff. And the leader, uh, Ruth Haley Barton, she said, uh, okay, this is the very beginning of this session. Okay, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to spend five minutes, and we're all going to sit for five minutes, and we're going to enjoy our Father's embrace. And I got weepy because I knew this is theologically sound according to the gospel, but I never saw it practiced where you just, you start with God's embrace, with his unconditional love. You start there. You don't try to get there. Like at the end, by the end of the day or the end of your quiet time, you start there. And then you go on from there. It's like Jesus said when he taught us how to pray. He said, he starts with our Father. That's where we start. You don't work to get there. If we wrote the Lord's Prayer, the Father part would be at the end. When we've done everything right, then we could say our Father. No, he says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. And as we get to become mature believers, we start adding conditions. And we lose that sense of the joy of our salvation. Purity, not perfection. Purity. Do you wake up feeling pure? Accepted, loved, adopted. You start there. Not trying to get there. You start there. Yikes. I think this is resonating with a couple of you, I think, isn't it? I don't know. Um, uh, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's not on the screen. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation. That's soteria. It means it comes from the root word is sozo. It, it means rescue, restore. It's not just a personal salvation from hell. That's included, but we've reduced it to that, and uh, it's just plain and complete. Um, but it's the power, the dunamis of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then it, 
I have this up here. Is the gospel of Jesus sufficient for the transformation of individuals and culture? That's a controversial question nowadays. I believe it is. And it's actually rare to think that way among Christians, among even evangelicals, that it's sufficient, not only for individuals, but even for culture to transform. Because it's usually the gospel and something else. You know, the gospel and, I don't know, politics. Or the gospel and whatever. But the gospel is actually, the good news of Jesus Christ is actually sufficient for your transformation and for the transformation of our city. It really is. And there's very few that think that way. Because if you say gospel and, all of a sudden you're saying it's not sufficient. Yeah. You know, we have, this is not on the screen, but we have come, this is out of Hebrews 6, uh, no, Hebrews 3, 14. We have come to share in Christ if we indeed, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. We get to share in Christ if we hold our confidence that we had at the beginning firm to the end. That's our battle because the world screams at us, no, the gospel is not true. And if they can't convince us of that, they'll say, no, the gospel is not sufficient. It's not the answer, but it is. Um, uh, the greatest enemies of the joy and desire that come from believing, that comes from believing the transformational gospel are man-made religion and the spirit of the age, in my opinion. You know, when we talk about the gospel, people immediately go to, okay, what kind of gospel are you talking about? Are you talking about the, the legalistic kind of gospel where you get your salvation and then up starting that day you have to roll up your sleeves and become a good Christian person. You gotta work at it, you gotta make it happen. Or the other alternative is usually the greasy grace gospel. Sloppy agape, you know, slimy, greasy grace. I'm just, you know, I can't help it and God loves me anyway. He understands. I'm just gonna be broken all my life and I'm gonna hang around with other broken you know, we just like Greasy grace. We just, oh, I can't help myself. <laughs> grace is power. Grace is transformational power. Um, but um, there's a psalm, Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, that I really, in a nutshell, um, it's a very anti-religious psalm. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I mean, listen to this. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Your law, oh my God, your law is within my heart. Because he wants to replace duty with desire. Duty doesn't 
last long. He doesn't want you living that way. He wants you to have desire, or as in Psalm 51, a willing spirit. Um, and then the next one I wrote down was the spirit of the age, which is so prevalent we don't even see it most of the time, and it's humanism. That's, what our, that's the spirit of the age in our city, in our country at this time. The Germans would call it zeitgeist, which is this time ghost. That's, that's what, humanism. And I put down the definitionary of, or a definition of humanism from the Oxford Dictionary. And this is kind of a nice uh, definition. An outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanists, humanist believe, beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human needs, and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. Sounds nice, except it doesn't get you anywhere. It leads to despair. And uh, it's been chipping away at us for many years. And it won't stop. And we do all kinds of theological gymnastics try to accommodate it and have peaceful coexistence with it. And we don't want to get labeled. Uh, so we, we accommodate it with theological gymnastics and try, and it's, it's not gonna work because the thing about humanism is it's, its standards are all based on human consensus. And they're constantly changing, they're fluid. And they not only change all the time, but they change rapidly. And the, the, the speed at which they're changing are, is happening faster and faster. And you not only change, are you supposed to change, but you're supposed to change as quickly as the human consensus says. Because there's no foundation. So it's just fluid. Whatever, you know, the, the political winds are blowing, wherever they're blowing. And you better change with it. Otherwise, you're a freak. And you're evil. And so there's a point where you just got to say, no, I'm, I, that's so hopeless. And I'm, I want to be filled with hope. The gospel gives us hope. And it gives us desire. And it gives us freedom. It's not something to earn. And as humanism increases and we get away from the Christian faith, sanctimony increases. You'd think it would go the other way around. But my group is more virtuous than your group. Because it's all about comparison. We're good. We're good. You're bad. And everybody does it. And uh, it's sanctimony. You'd think as people would get away from Christianity that the sanctimony would decrease, but it's actually increasing. Because it's all about comparison. It's not about... like. The Roman church had the same issues. The Jews were kicked out of Rome for about 10 years until uh, Claudius died and then Nero came and then let all the Jews back in, including the Christian Jews, Priscilla and Aquila and all. They came back. And when they came back, the Gentile believers kind of discriminated against the Jewish believers of Christ. And they weren't getting along. So Paul starts out and he starts talking about, in the first chapter of Rome, starts talking about how the Gentiles got so pagan. And then the second chapter, he talks about how the Jews aren't any better. (laughs) 
And then the third chapter, he goes, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he gives them the gospel. And these are believers that have to hear the gospel and a created unity. Um, so, um, Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Um, yeah. What can the righteous do? Go back to your foundation. And you'll find freedom. You'll find joy. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in that order. The righteousness comes as a gift. And as a result, you find peace. And then you find joy. And it doesn't come anywhere from anywhere except from above. All right. Next slide. This is, this is a saying that I live by in business and stuff. I don't even know where I got it. If I, I, don't, know if, I don't think I made it up. I, I've, I've had this for years, and so I don't know. But it, I like it. Master the fundamentals and break the rules of convention in their application. What does that mean? Uh, I knew in a couple pretty successful artists in Milwaukee, and one of them, he was really successful. You never know it by talking to him or looking at him. <laughs> His paintings look like, <clears throat> like a, a chimpanzee made them. I mean, to me. Just splashes of bright colors, you know. And uh, he had a big gallery, and I went in there one day, went in there one day to say hi. And, and he had this, he had the usual paintings there, and all abstract, and then he had this classical painting of a, a nude woman there, and I go, hey, who, who did this? And he goes, I did. I go, what? You know how to do this? <laughs> and he goes, well, yeah, you have to learn how to do that before you learn how to do that. I go, wow, I said, you're a real artist. <laughs> he didn't appreciate that. But if, like, if you were a real artist, you would, you would see in his splashy stuff that he knew the fundamentals. He knew them, and you could, like a true artist could detect those things. But it's true in everything. Master the fundamentals. Learn the fundamentals of your faith. And then apply them in unconventional ways. Um, yeah, I think Jesus lived that way. He was very orthodox. He's a very orthodox Jew, but he knew the foundation better than the scribes, better than the Pharisees, because he knew what it was all about. And then he broke the rules of how he applied everything of those foundations. Okay. Romans 6. We know, uh, 6 to 8 and then verse 11, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do we do that? Do you consider yourselves dead to sin? and alive to God in Christ? 
That's the gospel. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he, took, he represented you on the cross, your old Adamic self, the part, you know, the, the, the you that was born on your birthday. You were a descendant of Adam, and you grew up sinful. I don't care how nice you were. You grew up sinful. And Jesus crucified you with himself on the cross, the Adamic nature. And now he's put us into, into Christ, into himself. And uh, basically, is if you've been born again, you now have a different daddy than, you, than the one you were born with. You, you have a different daddy. His name is God. It's not Adam. And you didn't earn it. Jesus did it. And he said, you must consider yourselves as logizomai. It's, it's an accounting term. It's, it's, a, it's, it's completely logical. It's where we get the word logic from, that same root word. And he goes, there's an there's a Adam column, and then there's an in Christ column. You don't gradually shift from one to the other. Either you are in Adam or you're in Christ. And he says, consider yourself. Logically, consider yourself in the Christ column, if you're born again. It has nothing to do with the way you feel. Nothing. Yeah. Next slide. Every idol becomes a tyrant. You know, shiny objects become a tyrant eventually. Uh, whatever your idol could be. Even as believers, we can, we can... This is another life sucker. We become enslaved by the things that the devil puts in front of us that are nice and shiny, whether they're systems of thought or whatever. Maybe it could be just yourself. You know, if you're self-centered or whatever, you yourself becomes an idol, becomes a tyrant. Uh, greed sounds good at first because you can do so many good things with your money. Pretty soon it becomes a tyrant and you don't know how to get yourself out. You can't because it's a tyrant. It's tricked you. And uh, the biggest one is self. You know that the cure for narcissism isn't within you? <laughs> In fact, the more you try, the worse, the more narcissistic you get. The more you try not to be narcissistic, you just get worse. Oh, I need, I, I need to serve food at the homeless shelter. Then I won't be so... Well, actually, if you're doing it for that reason, to be less narcissistic, you become more narcissistic doing that. Because it's still about you. I go, how does that happen? Jesus said, deny yourself, come pick up your cross and follow me. How do you do that? I think Exodus 33 gives me a clue. It's, it might not be, this is just my opinion. When Moses said to God, show me your glory, and God said, you know, no one can see my face and live. And he said, but I'll, I'll let you see my backside and I'll let my goodness pass in front of you, which was his glory. Because his goodness kills people. 
And that's the cure for narcissism, to see the face of God. And we go, I give up. It happened to Peter, John's, James, James and John, Peter and Andrew and the, on the shore. Peter said, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. It happened to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. I'm a man of unclean lips. Depart from me. I'm a dead man. God says, okay, I'll fix that. Come with me. So, wrapping up here. In Christ, we're not products of our past. We're products of our future. Because in Christ, he looks at us, God looks at us from the future to the present, not from the past to now. That's why Paul said, I can forget everything that lies behind. I can press on. Um, and he's given us ionion zoe. You know what that means? Eternal life. You know what that means? It doesn't mean just living a long, long time. It means a quality of life that's to be lived right now and in eternity. Uh, it, it, it means literally life of the age to come. We are to live uh, as if Christ has already come back. And he's renewing and restoring all things. We can live that way now. In fact, we are, the body of Christ is the window up to the future. We are the preview of coming attractions. And if we, when we live by the world, if we uh, have an idol that's maybe a politician, or uh, relying on the government to solve all your problems instead of the ruler of the kings of the earth, uh, we don't live in Ionian Zoe, eternal life. So, Revelation 21.5, this is my last slide. For he who was seated, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. All things new. Do we walk in newness of life? Do we pay attention to what he's already, already told us? His gospel. Not just a personal salvation from hell, but a much bigger story than that that includes our personal salvation but he's, re he's renewing and he's restoring all things. And we're not bright enough, we're not smart enough to do any of that. He's doing it. And all things are new. And we can walk that way. Future, present, not past, present. Future, present. So in conclusion, um, let's believe the good news with our heart, which enables us to simply follow him. We can trust him. We can take risks when he says, come with me. When he says, jump off that cliff, I'll catch you. When he says, quit your job. Yay! He says that sometimes to people. Said it to me. Said it to Marlene. <laughs> Do you trust me? 
you trust me to provide? Do you trust me? And I will restore to you, he says, the joy of your salvation. And I will uphold you with a willing spirit. I'll give you desire. And then you will teach transgressors my ways, and sinners will return to, turn to me. Yeah. So, thanks. That's all I have. So, uh, we're going to have communion, I understand. We're going to have worship leaders come up. Good. Um, <clears throat> one thing I appreciate about uh, the Lord's Supper is that Jesus instituted, and he did it as, in, as part of Jewish culture, because, you know, God never told the Hebrew, he never gave the Hebrews philosophy. Did you know that? He gave them festivals. He gave them meals. He said, now, when I, I want you to have this meal, and I want you to remember what I did when I took you out of Egypt. And commemorate it with a meal. And then, and then I want you to spend, uh, later on in the year, I want you to spend a week in the backyard with the kids in a tent to show them what it was like to come out of Egypt and be in the wilderness and so forth and so on. He, he, he gave us meals to celebrate what he did and what he's going to do. There was an exodus. There's going to be another exodus. I will rescue you. And he said, uh, Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, um, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death in the past, his rescue, until he comes, his future rescue, his future restoration. And he gave us a meal. He didn't give us a philosophy. He gave us a meal. So let's celebrate that today. And let's pray. Father, only you can uh, restore unto us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Let, let us pay attention to what you have already told us in your word. And let us return to our first love. Let us enjoy the salvation that you've given us, the purity, the freedom, the wholeness. And you will truly transform us. And you can transform our city with the message of the good news. It's simply news. And our job is to report it and to live like we believe it. We thank you for what you've done. We owe you our lives. And we can trust you completely with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.